Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Hello, lovely Skylight listeners, and welcome back to Skylit. This is the Skylight Books podcast series where we talk to authors near and far. Um, we're bringing you this content while we are not able to host in-store events. So, you know, we still wanted to bring you that same stacked lineup of fantastic authors um, and, and people who have good questions for those authors. <laughs> we often bring a lot of guests on to interview them. But today I will be interviewing our guests. Um, if you don't know me, my name is Maddie Gobo. I'm the events manager here at Skylight Books. Just a little bit about our store again, in case you're new to the podcast. Um, we are located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. Right now we are open every day from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. for um, curbside pickup. We'll also ship online orders all over the country and you can browse in person if you're wearing a mask and you're socially distancing and you're washing your hands very frequently. Um, so yeah, we've got, we've got the store up and running and um, we've got lots of events coming up for the fall, which you can check out on our Crowdcast page. That's crowdcast.io slash skylightbooks. Um, we're also partnering on a couple of really fun um, bundled book with ticket events with our friends over at Dynasty Typewriter. Um, so those events are all coming up in September and October there for, we're doing events for um, Corey Doctorow, V.E. Schwab, and Chuck Palahniuk. Um, so we've got some heavy hitters there. Uh, so to, yeah, keep, keep an eye on our calendar for updates on those events, and uh, we hope we'll see you there. All right, so without further ado, um, I think it's so fitting today that we are here on a podcast about authors, talking about a book about authors and books and the books that they love. Um, so today I have two guests. Uh, they are co-authors of the new anthology, The Writer's Library. My guests are Nancy Pearl and Jeff Schwager. I'm going to read their bios in just a second, but um, just a little bit about the book. The Writer's Library is an anthology of interviews with so many fantastic writers. Um, and Jeff and Nancy are talking with these writers about the kind of books that they hold in, in their kind of inner libraries, um, the libraries that they carry around with them in their hearts and their minds, wherever they go. Um, there's some really beautiful conversations in here. Um, a lot of my favorite authors are in this lineup. So um, I think it's, it's just a great collection and, and really um, warm and, and a great sort of like companion for, uh, for yourself and for your future reading. All right, so I'm going to introduce our guests and then we'll get started with this conversation. Best-selling author, librarian, literary critic, and devoted reader Nancy Pearl regularly speaks about the importance and pleasure of reading at libraries, literacy organizations, and community groups around the world. 
She can be heard on NPR's Morning Edition and KWGS-FM in Tulsa, Oklahoma, discussing her favorite books. Her monthly television show on the Seattle channel Book Lust with Nancy Pearl features interviews with authors, poets, and other literary figures. Among her many honors are the 2011 Librarian of the Year Award from Library Journal and the 2011 Lifetime Achievement Award from the Pacific Northwest Booksellers Association. Nancy is the creator of the internationally recognized program If All of Seattle Read the Same Book and was the inspiration for the Archie McPhee Librarian action figure, which I own. Uh, <laughs> Pretty cool. Pretty cool, Nancy. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you for joining us. Um, so happy to be here with Jeff. Yeah, and so Jeff, I'll read Jeff's bio before we can we bring him on. So Jeff Schwager is a Seattle-based writer, editor, producer, and playwright who has also had a successful career as an entertainment and media executive. He has written extensively on books, movies, music, and theater, and has interviewed many of the most esteemed artists in each of those mediums. In 2013, Book It Repertory Theater produced his acclaimed adaptation of Dennis Johnson's Jesus Son. The following year, the company's five-hour stage version of his dramatization of Michael Chabon's The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, which is a fantastic novel, won Theater Puget Sound's prestigious Gregory Award for Outstanding Production of 2014. Welcome, Jeff. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having us. We're so excited to be here. Well, um, I wanted to just see if you could kind of give our listeners a quick introduction to the book and kind of where it came from and, and what's it about before we sort of dive deeper into some of the, the juicy bits from the interviews. Well, it's always seemed to me that when you talk to somebody um, about their lives, when you want to find out about someone's life, you can talk to them about the books they've read and loved. And in fact, um, I recently read that Osip Mandelstam, the great Russian poet, said that, said, if you want to know my biography, ask me what books I've read. And um, so talking to people about books is something that I've always, always loved to do as a librarian, but also as just as a reader. And when Jeff and I met, when he was actually interviewing me for a project that he was doing, we soon discovered that one of our favorite things to do was talk about books, argue about books, disagree about books, agree about books, all those different iterations. Yes, and so uh, I had had uh, an idea about doing a book of interviews with authors uh, about the books that they love, and I had this title, the writer's library, and as I got to know Nancy, I asked her if she would ever consider working on a book with me, uh, and uh, she would, and she did, and <laughs> we did, and um, so we then set about uh, doing the things that you do when you want to write a nonfiction book. We talked to uh, Nancy's agent, who was excited about the project. Um, we quickly uh, found a publisher for it, um, and we started talking about the writers who we'd want to include in the book and what we'd want the vision uh, of the book to be. Um, and I think what, what we quickly settled on was the idea that um, we would do all American writers, uh, but a, 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 a sort of America not of the typical American literary canon, but of today's America, a multicultural society with writers from all over the world who've come to America as part of the great American melting pot experiment. Uh, and that's, uh, those are the writers that we've found and that we interviewed. And uh, yeah. Yeah, and I think that 
um, it wasn't as quick a process, I think, as Jeff is making it sound, picking those authors, because we both started out with long lists of writers that we really wanted to talk to. And some of the authors were people that Jeff had interviewed in his previous existence as an interviewer or authors that I'd interviewed for my TV show. Um, and then, you know, we had a little bit of fisticuffs about <laughs> um, you know, Jeff's favorite writer that I just really didn't want to interview or vice versa. And then it turned out that some of the writers we really, really wanted to interview happened to no longer be living. Um, <laughs> you know, so there was that whole issue too. And, and, but we ended up with um, what I think is very exciting, an equal number of men and women somebody actually uh, wrote to me to say how how pleased she was about that and um just a great great list of writers of all kinds of um, winners of all kinds of awards newish writers but also some really uh big names in the literary field which we were which we felt good about yeah um, and and jeff and i did this back in the old days where we could fly to the different places um, and we actually interviewed um, the majority of the writers at their homes. Um, two writers, uh, well you want to talk about Donna Tartt and Amaza? Yes, well Donna, uh, unfortunately we were never in the same place as Donna Tartt. Uh, we were hoping to interview her in person but that didn't work out but um, we were so eager to have her in the book that we ended up doing the one email interview that we have uh, in the book uh, is with Donna Tart, and that turned out great. I mean, it's it's wonderful to have Donna Tart's sentences in the book. Um, she's such a beautiful writer, and so that was exciting for us. And then uh, Maza uh, Mengiste, who wrote uh, the Shadow King, Shadow King, Shadow Warrior, the Shadow King, the Shadow King. Sorry, Maza. Um, I'll say that again, and your editor can edit it. And Maza Mengiste, who uh, wrote The Shadow King, um, we interviewed at the Center for Fiction in Brooklyn, uh, where she had an exhibit uh, on display of the photos that inspired her book of uh, women in Ethiopia who were in involved uh, in the war um during world war ii and that was uh, it was wonderful to see those photos and also wonderful to see the center for fiction and talk to to maza there yeah that's so great um we just did an event for maza a couple of weeks ago uh for for her new adisa baba noir collection oh yeah. Yeah. yeah right i'm excited to read that interview um so I really want to hear a lot more about like the inside glimpses of, of these writers' homes and libraries for sure. But before we go, before we go into, the, into the juicy stuff, um, could you talk a little bit more about kind of this, this multicultural America that, that you're hoping to represent with the, this lineup of authors? I just want to kind of shout out some of the names on this list. So we've got um, Leila Lalami, Luis Alberto Urea, I'm going to say that one again, Luis Alberto Urea. We've got T.C. Boyle, we've got Susan Choi, um, we've got Louise Erdrich, we've got Viet Tan Nguyen, uh, Siri Hustvet, Donna Tart, as we've mentioned. It's, it's a really great list and um, I'm just curious kind of how you, how you kind of narrowed it down a little bit more and, and what were kind of some of the things you were keeping in mind as you were making those final selections. 
Well, there were some writers who uh, were kind of on both of our lists and were no-brainers to us. They're, they're huge names like Donna Tart. Uh, uh, we, we really wanted to do uh, some couples, if we could, who were writers, and we only ended up with one couple, but it was sort of a, an amazing couple, Michael Shaben and Ayelet Waldman. Um, I had, uh, as, as you mentioned in my biography, I had adapted uh, The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay for the stage um, and uh, had Michael's email address as a result. And uh, so I was uh, able to send him an email and, and ask if he would do it. And he responded in like two minutes, yeah, we'll do it. Um, so that was great. Um, and it turned out to be one of the most popular interviews in the book. It's, it's just very funny in addition to telling you a lot about who they are both as writers, but who they are in their relationship to one another in their marriage. It's a lovely, lovely interview. It is. And, um, you know, beyond sort of the major names uh, in American fiction, uh, Russell Banks is another one who, um, he was the person whom, when Nancy created the If All Seattle Read the Same Book program, which has been emulated nationwide. Uh, she chose Russell's book, The Sweet Hereafter. And so she had a longstanding uh, literary friendship with Russell and he was excited to do the book. And so that was our, our first sort of goal was who are the literary lions that we would really want to include in the book? Um, one who we were, two who we weren't able to get were uh, Toni Morrison, uh, <laughs> We were dying to get her, and uh, bad bad right. choice of words. Right. Um, she was not she was not well, and um, yeah. we couldn't get her. And then another person we really wanted to get, who actually would have taken us out of the United States, but not North America, was Alice Munro. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were told that she was not doing interviews as well, uh, and she's retired from writing. But she is uh, my favorite living writer, uh, someone I admire. Yeah, and I think the authors, really, we ended up with authors whose books we loved. Um, yes. Viet Thanh Nguyen's uh, first novel, The Sympathizer, which went on to win the Pulitzer, um, was a book that I had reviewed very early on and loved and had him on my TV show um, and you know, have been a, a, a huge fan of his ever since. Um, uh, uh, Andy Greer, Andrew Sean Greer, who won the Pulitzer for less has, uh, since his first book came out, I've been a fan. It's sometimes it's a benefit to be this old because you know you can have a <laughs> lifetime of experience with, with these writers' books. But then I was the chair of the Pulitzer fiction jury the year that Les came out, and it was one of our three finalists. Um, so it was very nice to make another connection with him. Um, so they're books that we loved, and Leila Lalami's books, um, you know, I think we wanted that voice in it, in, in our collection of interviews. We wanted to kind of understand America from a different point of view, a different perspective, and Leila, 
you, you know, she's a you know, professor and she's a writer and she's a thinker, uh, just was so amazing in that interview. Yeah, and she's from, she was born and raised in Morocco and um, it was fascinating to get the perspective of someone from a Muslim country on the United States, United States fiction. We talked to her about Paul Bowles, who had, uh, the, the American author who had settled in Morocco and sort of his uh, skewed perspective on Moroccans. And, and it was really, that was one of the fascinating things that she talked about was how he lived in Morocco for 40 years and never really understood the people at all. Right. Uh, and, yeah. And I asked her, uh, I'm a film buff as well. I asked her about Casablanca and we sort of had a laugh about how that's a, a movie about Hollywood that just happens to take place in Casablanca. Right. So that was fun. And one of the interesting things when we interviewed Maza, you know, Maza talked about how she's not, her experience was that her family left Ethiopia um, and stayed and lived in several other African countries before they came to the United States. And her, but what she's interested in since she was a child and has just carried through and you could see in her books is she's interested in why people stay, not why they leave. And, and I think when, when you hear somebody talk about that, that comes out of their own experience, it gives you a different, a different, a different appreciation for their books, but also a certain insight into their books that you wouldn't get without knowing that kind of effect. And I got to know uh, a certain number of these writers because Nancy wanted to interview them for the book. I wasn't, I'm, I, I, I obviously I'm, don't have the uh, breadth of literary knowledge that Nancy has. Few people do. And uh, so one that uh, a writer who I, I came to love his work and then one of my absolute favorite, uh, most fun interviews in the book was Luis Al Alberto Urrea. And um, he's just hilarious to begin with. Yeah. Secondly, he loves rock and roll, which I do as well. And, and so part of the interview is talking about Leonard Cohen, who right. we both have a great passion for. And then just hearing him talk about growing up on the border of San Diego and Tijuana. He was born in Tijuana uh, and moved to San Diego when he was very young. His father is Mexican, his mother American. And talking about sort of being torn between those two cultures, it was just, uh, you know, it's, it's something, I grew up in Southern California and uh, in Santa Monica, which had a large Hispanic population, but we were very segregated within our school. Uh, people didn't really mix in those days. And um, it was fascinating to hear about what his life had been like. And um, also he is uh, a great believer uh, in Bigfoot, uh, which for us here in the Northwest is very interesting. And he talked a little bit about Bigfoot in the interview. So um. is there is there like a local sort of borderlands Bigfoot that he believes in? Or is, it, is he talking about the Northwestern one? Yeah, no, no. He was talking about the Northwestern one. And uh, it's not entirely clear to us where his fascination with Bigfoot came from, but it's genuine. Uh, it seems to be. And, and I think we ought to say, too, that, you know, we didn't go into these interviews with a, with a set list of questions. You know, we really saw these as conversations. And normally, I would start by saying, did you grow up 
a reader or were your parents readers or you know some some variation on that question but then the 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 discussions went in so many different ways and we just let them go and then to our great sadness had to cut out you know to get the interviews down to a, a manageable a manageable number of words that our editor wanted um, there's so much information so many great lines left behind i think that yeah. we're, we're just trying to think of what to do with all of that well not only that we, we had to cut the interview short uh on every occasion i think i would have stayed there at least for another hour with each of these people but nancy's like no we have to end the interview it's going to be impossible to uh edit these things yeah. so um yeah yeah so I'm curious, kind of, I mean, it sounds like you went in a lot of different directions, but um, as you were talking to people about their kind of reading lives, did you find any like interesting sort of correspondences between writers or were there things that they said that really, really surprised you? You would be amazed, I think, how many of the writers cited as one of their favorite early reads, Watership Down which was published in 1972 and most of these you know most of them read um, read watership down as as teen, as young teens or you know tweens um i every time it came up it was just so interesting and on the other end of the spectrum jeff's favorite author dennis johnson and his favorite book jesus's son came up numerous times <laughs> often not brought up by jeff himself uh, but by the authors. So those kinds of correspondences, and I just, can I say one more thing? The, uh, the other thing that I thought was really interesting is how many of the writers talked about reading to learn how to write. Um, mm. You know, Lori Frankel uh, talked about how, that, her, that the book she was working on, which is coming out soon, um, it's done, was, is, was written from, was told from three different points of view. And so she was specifically reading books that were told from multiple points of view. And, and Russell Banks talked about how um, he was rereading um, The Death of Ivan Illich because in his new book, um, there was a similar theme that he wanted to see how, you know, how it was handled in, in that wonderful, wonderful story. That's right. And a lot of the writers talked about how they would immerse themselves in the period in which their <laughs> books were set. Right. So Jennifer Egan, for example, uh, her, her most recent book, Manhattan Beach, was set in New York uh, around World War II, and she had really immersed herself in that era, starting uh, with one of our favorite writers, John O'Hara, and uh, Butterfield Eight, which is a sort of seminal book from that era. Um, another writer- oh, but What also Jennifer Egan arranges her books that's right. She arranges her books by the topic of the book that she was working on. So all of her Manhattan, uh, Manhattan Beach books were in one particular <laughs> bookshelf. Yes. So. And her oh. next book, uh, we'll give away a little trade secret here, is set in New York in the 19th century. And so she's been immersing herself in that period. Right. Uh, and she lives in New York and is a, is a New Yorker at this point in her life and uh, so she's having uh, great fun researching the life of her city. Uh, Amor Tolls talked about 
uh, how he had also uh, his his first novel, Rules of Civility, was set in New York in a similar era, and he had also read Butterfield Eight and gotten into O'Hara as a result of that. And O'Hara is a writer who Nancy and I both love and who is essentially forgotten today. Uh, and we share the same favorite O'Hara book, which is Sermons in Soda Water, a collection of three novellas. What, the, other, the other thing, um, another author that I think people might be surprised to, to learn about, Louise Erdrich, in, in the sense that she told us that the book that she really, really wanted to read when she was maybe 10 was Marjorie Morningstar. And it was up on a really high shelf in her parents' um, living room. And to get it, she would have had to stand on, you know, many, many, a chair and a lot, whatever, to try to get it. And Jennifer Egan talked about how much, like one summer she was reading Rebecca and her mother, her mother just said that she's so overwrought. And I just have this <laughs> wonderful picture in my head of Jennifer Egan, a ten, you know, like an 11 year old, whatever, reading Rebecca overwrought, because who isn't overwrought when, with Rebecca? It's such a, right, right. an overreading book. Yes. Donna uh, talks uh, about the same, same thing with Oliver Twist, right. uh, the trauma of everything that Oliver went through <laughs> right. as, uh, as a child and how she uh, had her grandmother read that to her when she was a child and probably too young to be hearing about these things, but she had to hear about it and uh, had to learn about it. Yeah, and yeah just you one can definitely other. feel feel Oliver Twist encoded in, in Donna's yeah, fiction. Totally. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, one more that uh, was just interesting to me was at, uh, I think, 11 or 12 years old, Jonathan Lethem read House of the Dead by Dostoevsky, right. uh, which uh, Jonathan Lethem may be the most widely read person uh, we interviewed in the book. I, I don't want to insult anyone no, else. No, no, because I think Michael Shabon is right up there. Too. Yeah. I mean, all of these people yeah, are incredibly right. widely read, but Jonathan... Uh, T Tom Boyle, T.C. Boyle. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah but they're all incredibly well-read. But Jonathan uh, worked in bookstores. Where, uh, he dropped out of college and worked in used bookstores and did nothing but read. And I think Andy Greer may have even made a comment about Jonathan just being the best-read person right. he'd ever met. So... Um, and we didn't even get a chance to talk about um, Benda La Vida and Dave Eggers, who are such a fabulous couple. We interviewed them separately and their experiences with being readers. As you can see, Jeff and I could go on for days because we had <laughs> such a great time doing the book. Um, and I think that, it, and I really think it comes through in those interviews. Yeah. So, Obviously, you, you made a very con uh, considered choice not to make this, you know, a coffee table book of the libraries of famous writers. But I do want to know about the libraries. And because you brought up um, Jennifer Egan's organizational strategy, I'm kind of yep. curious if there were any, any libraries that you visited, any home libraries that really struck you with their or organization or lack thereof or you know anything anything kind of special and magical about the way that these physical books are being kept by these big authors well i think we have to talk about tom boyle tc boyle uh who lives in a frank lloyd wright designed home in montecito uh and it's a sprawling home and so as a result his books are not particularly well organized but they are in many uh, different rooms and organized within those rooms. But 
uh, his home is just spectacularly beautiful. Uh, and, and, and it was almost lost both in the fires and the floods and mudslides uh, that happened in Montecito, I believe in 2018. Uh, which he wrote about in the New Yorker, sort of saving his home, being you know staying behind during the evacuation and uh, mm -hmm. spraying it with a, a hose and um, yeah, I was going to say I think the best part of seeing the authors' libraries was seeing books that we loved on their mm -hmm. shelves yes. and being able to say, oh my God, I loved that book. Um, uh, there's a book, one of my very favorite very, very favorite novels, The Woman Who Lost Her Soul, uh, was on Tom Boyle's shelf. And we both agreed how, how little known it was and how it needed, more people needed to read that book. And what a great, I mean, th that was so, it just connects you, you know, and somebody that you, that you admire or that you meet for the first time. I mean, I think readers go into people's houses back when we could go into people's houses and look, we look <laughs> at bookshelves and if they have the same books we have, we feel like, you know, like Anne Shirley and in, in, um, Anne of Green Gables that, you know, we've met a friend, a, a kindred spirit as Anne would say. Yeah, Madeline Miller yes. was another person. Yeah. Uh, we went to Madeline's home, which is uh, just outside Philadelphia. We uh, took the train from New York and um, saw her books. And, and she had a surprising number of sci-fi and fantasy yeah, books right. on her shelf. And um, I was actually surprised how many of these writers were inspired by sci-fi right. and fantasy. Right. Uh, because we don't really, other than Jonathan Leatham, who has um, sort of, for the most part, left that genre behind, although his forthcoming book uh, gets back into this uh, sci-fi fantasy world. Um, I was surprised how many writers were, were inspired by sci-fi fantasy. Did you, mm -hmm. did you find yeah, that? Yeah. I mean, even Charles Johnson, right, who, uh, who, wrote, who won the National Book Award for Middle Passage, uh, African-American writer who lives here in Seattle, um, Philip K. Dick was one of his favorite writers growing up. Yeah. Um, and what I made just, Dick I actually just read Middle Passage. It's fantastic. Um, yeah. My, my oh, partner yeah. dug up a, an old paperback and I was like, I've never heard of this book. And then I yeah. just fell right into it. It was so great. And yeah. intense, intense book. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so and glad Dave you guys spoke with him. <laughs> yeah. Dave Eggers, you know, what turned Dave Eggers into a reader was when he was in high school and read Dune, another classic science fiction. And he said the few, you know, the days that he was reading Dune, he felt he was in a different, a different world. Hmm. Yeah. So what do you think it is that, that draws writers in particular to these genre, um, to these kind of more pulpy genres? Though, you know, that's, maybe we're kind of like losing the genre distinction nowadays more than we would have in, in the past. Yeah. No, you go. Uh, well, I think that, you know, these are people with incredibly uh, active and vivid imaginations. And uh, especially when you're young, um, science fiction is one of the genres that uh, appeals to young people, uh, that is written to appeal to young people on the one hand. It's not, um, the, the, the language is not overly complex. The ideas tend to be, I think, you know, when, when you look at the writers, we're talking about Ray Bradbury, Philip K. Dick, they're not writing in uh, no. Faulknerian 
sentences. They're not writing in uh, Shakespearean, right. uh, you know, uh, iambic pentameter or, what, or, or, right. or a, you know, it's language that is uh, straightforward that they can read, but the imaginative right. breadth of the, uh, of the ideas within the books really appeals to people with these vivid imaginations that, that all of these writers had when they were young. You know who we haven't mentioned who was such a wonderful, um, so generous with her time, uh, is, is Jane Hirschfield, the poet. Yes. And um, just listening to Jane answer our questions and in that conversation and paying so much attention to each word that she's saying, you you just you know we just got such a an understanding of her not only as a human being but as as a as a writer as a poet yes and another person who had a wonderful library uh in her uh she has a, a sort of writing shed oh yeah, what would you right. uh yeah uh, an an outbuilding from her main house and it's just uh wall to wall with poetry all her poetry books are there and it was Sounds Just like heaven. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, her home is heaven. She lives in the hills uh, outside of Mill Valley, and uh, she has this spectacular garden, which is uh, reflected in her poetry. Right. She has so many, so much imagery that evokes uh, the garden and uh, nature, and um, that's really what her home is like. Um, another writer who had a beautiful library was uh, Amor Tolls. Uh, he had just the quintessential uh, New York townhouse den, uh, floor to ceiling, bookshelves, dark wood. Uh, first editions were behind glass. Um, just uh, an amazing, amazing uh, collection of books, which um, I would have given my left arm to, to own. I'm a book collector myself, and they were just uh, some amazing things there. Um, in the introduction written by Susan Orlean, which is lovely, um, she kind of talks about books being somewhat alive. Yes. Um, and I really loved that, that kind of entry point for this collection. Could you talk a little bit about, like, did you, did you find that to be true in the way that these writers spoke about the books that they loved? Did they speak about them as though they were alive, as though they were people they knew? Gosh, yes. Yeah, totally. Yeah, uh, but I mean, like... Uh... Laurie Frankel uh, talked about Hamlet and the characters in Hamlet uh, and how Hamlet was the book that she goes back to uh, the most often in her life and, and how alive that book was for her. Um. And Madeline Miller talking about, um, uh, talking about several of the books of, of um, oh my gosh, um, what's his name? Um, the person who's so sexist and misogynist. Oh, John Updike. John Updike. <laughs> Madeline Miller talking about her anger at John Updike and, yes. and, um, and, and how she compared it to King Lear, who wasn't very nice about his daughters and makes some, you know, misogynistic statements and, and, and how she reconciled her love of King Lear of the play with, with those, whereas she could not, Right. Well, her feeling was that with Updike, the misogyny was the the, narr the narrator, and with uh, King Lear, it was the character. Right. And uh, right. that was that was kind of the the difference there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Um, it's interesting about Susan Orlean and how she ended up doing the foreword for us. Uh, we had hoped to interview Susan for the book. We wanted to have a nonfiction uh, specialist in the book. And uh, Susan has homes both in New York and LA. And uh, we actually had interviews scheduled with her in both places. And then right before the interviews happened, she switched coasts. Uh, and so we never got to interview her. So we asked her if she would consider doing the foreword. And she agreed uh, right away. And we had no idea. We gave her no direction, no idea what she would write. And she wrote this beautiful essay about, um, uh, you know, her uh, experience with books and and her mother's and life her, and her mother and yeah, it was right. it was really beautiful. And this all, of course, happened before uh, Susan became the most famous person on the internet uh, as she is as is today. How could we uh, forget the the Twitter thread to end yeah. all Twitter threads? <laughs> yeah, um, and so we feel, you know, we're lucky. We probably could never get Susan Orlean's attention at this point. She's she's too famous for us. But <laughs> it was, it's wonderful, too, to see this uh, other side of Susan in this Twitter thread that you would never kind of glean from her, um, from her writing, which is so wonderful and so uh, deep and, and, and how funny she is, I guess, uh, on Twitter was really um, fascinating. Yes, well, writing contains all kinds of slivers of our lives, right? Not, not always just the polished, fancy ones. Sometimes right. the messy stuff is in there, too. Yeah, Susan um, contains multitudes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just wanted to kind of loop back because I, th I thought, you know, this book is so important, not only because, you know, you get a little glimpse into these writers' lives and their bookshelves and their favorite books, but also because it reminds us that, um, you know, books are not just these sort of dead objects. They are, they are networks, ultimately, right? They are, they are these sites of connection um, that, and then, and they get layered over time with memory and, you know, all of this, they're so, they become more and more rich the longer you spend with them, even, even just, you know, some beat up paperback, it can become this incredibly valuable thing. Um, and then if you lose that paperback, it, it hurts. It feels like losing a friend. Um, and I think, I think that feeling really comes across in a lot of these interviews and, and these, the thoughts that these writers share with you. Um, and I think that that's, that's something we should remember, um, you know, given that so much of our lives take place online now. Um, and, and, and being online, you know, as I am constantly <laughs> online, you know, recording interviews and running virtual events and all this stuff, I don't feel that layering happening and I miss it. And, and when I return to the bookstore and I walk around and I touch the books, like it is like being a, around friends. Um, so I hope, that, I hope that readers take that away from this collection, but I'm curious what, what you both hope um, they take away and what you hope for the life of this book now that it's out in the world. Well, one of the things that I hope is that readers will find lots of good reading suggestions. Um, one of the things we did at the end of each interview was pull out some of the books that the authors mentioned that they had loved. Um, so in a way it's, you know, in the library world, we call it reader's advisory. And in the book selling world, which I was also a part of, we call it hand selling. In some ways, this is um, a book that will give you, if you like the books of Michael Shaban, I think that you know, that his, his suggestions give, give those books one step up 
you know, in your pile of to be read. So that's certainly one of the things that um, that that I hope that people get out of readers get out of this out of this book. Yeah, and I think what you said uh, is is really yeah. important to me. The idea of the physical book and not losing that uh, love of the 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 sort of uh, totem that a book is. Um, in and of itself, uh, you read a, a book on your on your uh, device, and it's it's gone. You know, uh, you eventually you you discard it because you want to keep adding books. And um, the physical book, at, at least uh, for someone like me, I I the ones I cherish, I keep always and go back to them always and. Uh, I mentioned earlier Sermons in Soda Water was one of the books Nancy and I bonded over. It's a, it's a beautiful um, collection of novellas by John O'Hara that was originally published in the 50s as three volumes in a slipcase. And uh, the first edition of it, there was a limited edition that was signed by O'Hara. And I have one of those. And I reread that over the weekend. Um, and it was just such a joy. And if I had first read it, um, you know, on a, on a literary, uh, on a device, I won't, you know, I, I won't use the brand name, but if I first read it on a device, I don't think I would still have it to, to reread. And, um, yeah. And plus, you know, I'm, I'm a big rereader and especially during this pandemic I've been doing, that's a lot of what I've been doing is just revisiting old favorites because there's something about that connection between you and a book that is so powerful. And in our interview with Richard Ford, we talked about revisiting books and the different experiences that you have with that. But, but that connection, that centering, um, that going back to a book that you loved, which is risky because sometimes you've changed so much and you know it's no longer the book that you loved. But for me, having those books around physical books around is is something that's so such a a wonderful adjunct to to a life yeah you see it on your shelf and right. it reminds right. you and and you take it down and you look right. at it again and we asked many of the authors uh if there was a particular volume a special book a uh, physical object that they cherished the most and a couple people had first editions of the great gatsby that was, uh, you know, their most cherished. And uh, uh, Andy Greer mentioned a book that had been given to him by uh, Jonathan Lethem right. as a gift. Uh, it was, I believe, it was Rebecca. It was a special. Right. It was a special edition of Rebecca that uh, Jonathan had given him, that he uh, cherished, and he yeah. showed it to us, and and it was beautiful uh, to see that, and and also to sort of feel the the that literary friendship kind of comes alive for us uh, in that moment. Mm, that's beautiful. Well, um, before we say our goodbyes, I just wanted to ask if there's anything else you want to say or share with our listeners? No, I think you brought it all out of us. You, we, <laughs> we, are, we are depleted and going back to read. Have we got a whole interview without mentioning Philip Roth? I find that hard to believe. I think we did. I think we did. <laughs> But now he, now he's well, here, so we can end. My favorite writer ever, and I um, asked almost every writer, I would say, about Philip Roth. They didn't all make it into the uh, finished book, but Philip Roth <laughs> was, was, the, was the writer who um, 
most influenced me in my reading. And uh, so I don't know why I bring that up now, but since you asked. He's the, uh, he's the cranky guardian angel of this collection. We'll that's right. That <laughs> well said. <laughs> All right. Well, my guests today were Jeff Schwager and Nancy Pearl. Nancy and Jeff, thank you so much. What a great conversation. I'm really excited for our, uh, our customers to check out the book. Well, thank you so Sorry. much for having us on. All thank right. You. Well, hopefully we can all meet in person someday back under the skylight. Um, but for now, we'll say our goodbyes. Jeff and Nancy, thank you. And their book, their new book, is The Writer's Library. You can get it from Skylight Books now. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon. I see.